is Our American Stories, and for the hour, we're going to be talking about the life of Tom Petty. And of course, when you talk about Tom Petty, you've got to talk about his band, The Heartbreakers. They were inseparable. Petty melded California rock with a deep, stubborn Southern heritage to produce a string of durable hits. According with The Heartbreakers, the band he formed in the mid-1970s, his voice was grainy and unpretty. And with that Florida drawl that he proudly displayed, he never got rid of it. There was rebellion in his music. He was writing about losers. He was writing about outsiders. And he drew us all in. He sold over 80 million albums and headlined arenas and festivals practically until the day of his death. Jesse and I saw him just a few months before he passed in Memphis. It was a terrific show. I'd never seen Petty better. Never seen Mike Campbell better. He's lead guitarist. Petty played the Super Bowl halftime, entered the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002, but it was his songs that stayed down to earth with sturdy guitar riffs carrying lyrics that spoke for underdogs and outcasts everywhere. Producer Rick Rubin wasn't a Tom Petty fan growing up. Quote, I usually liked more edgy music, he told Rolling Stone. But Rubin fell in love with the singer-songwriter's first solo outing, 1989's Full Moon Fever, after running down a dream entranced him. Quote, the consistency and quality of songwriting on the whole album sucked me in, Rubin says. I listened to it all day, every day, in my car for a year. And so did so many of us. Let's start things off with his biggest musical influences. It was Elvis, of course. It was the Beatles, of course. But there was this one band that it really, really inspired him. Elvis was like, uh, before the Beatles... You know, my picture of Elvis was was the American dream. I mean, this was a kid from the South who had broken all the rules, you know, had become his own man and sort of looked like he did, you know, whatever he wanted, whether adults liked it or not. <laughs> you know, that was kind of the picture I had. Mm-hmm. And But that didn't look like something you could be to me, you know. And you mean to be Elvis? You know, no one's ever pulled that off. I mean, you'd have to be Elvis. You'd have to look like that for one thing, and you'd have to, you know, orchestras would have to come out of the shrubbery and on, appear on the beach. You know, like that just doesn't happen. But the Beatles, you know, that looked like something that could be done to me, like. These people look like they're self-contained. They're making music that they wrote themselves. And they're, they're, the music's all there on the stage. They're playing it. And they look like they're really good friends and they're having a lot of fun. And I'll bet they're not worried about bread either, you know. And, of course, they were so absolutely genius, you know, like they were so good even in 64 that it seemed like really hard to ever reach that kind of uh, musicianship. Uh, But then you saw the Stones come on there not much long after that and you went, that I can do, you know, I can do that. That I can do, and he did. So where did it all start? 
Thomas Earl Petty was born on October 20th, 1950, the first child of Earl Petty, an insurance salesman and the former Catherine Avery, who was known as Kitty. Petty recalled a rough childhood with frequent beatings by his father. Music was his escape from his father and that abuse. Long before I even thought of playing anything or trying to perform music, I really loved to listen to it. And I kind of escaped into that world of just listening very intently to these records. Looking back, I think it was probably a safe place mentally for a really abused child, you know, that that was probably what was going on. But I'd kind of always thought... I mean, I can kind of trace back to the age of nine or ten being really interested in the radio and the rock and rollers and thinking that was a pretty cool thing. But I didn't, I didn't even dream that I would do that for a long time. Uh, I have to kind of look at it in perspective. Looking back, I think that's probably was part of it. You know, that was something that was mine and it, it belonged to me. And, it, and it, no one else really had anything to do with it. And by the way, we find this out from Al Pacino when he was talking about his early life. He wasn't abused by his father. He didn't have one. And he was alone a lot. And so he ran into the world of his own imagination and created his own space. And so many of these writers we profile and artists are lonely. They are outcasts. And I think it's why we're all drawn to them in the end. They open up. They share. They break down that wall. And again, when you go to see a Tom Petty concert, if you were lucky enough to see it, and by the way, see Running Down a Dream on Netflix, and you get to see what he was like live. It's a remarkable thing. When we come back, Tom Petty's life, his story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We continue our celebration of the life of Tom Petty. And this song, not a giant hit, but one of my favorites. Jesse and I were just talking about seeing Petty in Memphis. He didn't play The Waiting. He didn't play Here Comes My Girl. And that was it about Tom Petty. He had so many great songs that no matter how perfect you thought his set list was, it was never quite perfect enough. And again, that is a tribute to the just stunning catalog that he and his band, his boys, came up with over all those years, four decades worth of writing. Well, it all started in the mid-1960s and gigging around in the hometown of Gainesville, Florida. That's where it started, in a band called Mud Crutch. And it included Mike Campbell and keyboardist Benmont Tench. Mike may be the best sideman in the business. And Benmont, too, right up there with Roy Bitton on keyboards. They would become mainstays of the Heartbreakers. The group built a large local following in Florida, and then Tom Petty got the idea that so many young musicians do. I want a record contract. So he went out to Los Angeles, drove all the way there with a tape in his hand and a dream. I was very romantic. I, I did not see why I couldn't walk in the door, play them a tape, and suddenly be, you know, signed up and on my way. Didn't, you know, I thought I had the music. Sometimes I look back at this and go, God, you had a lot of nerve, <laughs> you know. You, but I always felt like if you give me the shot, I can do it. I don't think when I came out, even when we signed to Shelter, I don't think we were ready, you know. I think we thought we were ready. But I wasn't there yet, you know. I was writing songs. I was. They were good enough to attract people into one. If, if it hadn't been for Denny Cordell who said, wait a minute, you know, we're not making a record right away. We're going to take time. We're going to get used to playing in studios. You're going to spend all your time learning how to write songs. And I'm going to expose you to lots of people and lots of records. In those days, you only knew the records you owned, really. I didn't have the money to have a huge record collection. Cordell had every record in the world in his office, you know, and we'd meet there every day at 6. And he'd say, you know... You ever hear Lloyd Price? You know, no, you know, check this out. You know, Larry Williams, no, play, you know, and he'd play all this stuff to me. And my songs got better, you know. But by the time we made our first album as the Heartbreakers, there was nothing in the demo tape that even got recorded, you know. That, and when if I heard it now, I'm sure it'd be embarrassing. I mean, the songs weren't as good, you know, as they needed to be. But we had the talent and we had the will to do it, but we weren't ready yet. If I had, say, signed with Capitol Records, I think we'd have made one sort of semi-good record and been dropped, and I'd have been back in Gainesville, you know, trying to figure out what went wrong. And by the way, what a confession. And what a time in the music business back when there were A&R guys, that's artists and repertoire, and managers who wanted to just bring you along and create a career today, almost impossible. And even then, if Tom Petty had released those early songs, he may have never been Tom Petty. But he waited, and he worked, and then out came Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' debut album in 1976, 
and this song, which made its way up the charts. follow-up album in 1979, Damn the Torpedoes, and this song. And then came 1981, and Petty did it again. The album Hard Promises, and this monstrous song. And Tom Petty fans wouldn't have to wait long. One year later, the album Long After Dark drops, and this song. One, two, three, four. 
And we were all lucky to have known or found Tom Petty in our time to know his music. And when we come back, we're going to rip through the discography. And more importantly, we're going to hear more from Tom Petty himself on songwriting, the art, the craft, the life. Tom Petty's story, here on Our American Stories. our American story celebrating the life the music the art of Tom Petty and of course when you talk about Petty you've got to talk about his magnificent band and you're going to hear him talk about his band because Tom Petty is not Tom Petty without Mike Campbell and Ben Montench and the rest of the magnificent players that played so beautifully together and it was fun to just go see those boys tour I mean most marriages don't last 40 years to keep a band together that long it's just remarkable and it's beautiful and half the reason we go to see them, and half the reason we go to see Bruce, and the reason we go to see you 2 and the Stones, they stay together, and they keep making great music. And that's hard today, really hard to keep things together. That was 1985, by the way. We're ripping through the discography of Tom Petty because it's so remarkable. Next up, his first solo effort, but some of the boys played on this too, Full Moon Fever and this smash hit. She's a good girl, loves her mama, loves Jesus in America too. She's a good girl, is crazy about Elvis, loves horses and her boyfriend too. And it's a long Living in Reseda There's a freeway Running through the yard And I'm a bad boy Cause I don't even miss her I'm a bad boy For 
breaking her heart And two years later, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers got back together. Into the Great Wide Open was the record, and this smash hit. Well, it started out Down a dirty Started out all alone, and the sun went down as across the hill, and the town lit up. The world got still. I'm learning to fly, but I ain't got wings. The hardest thing Well the good old days May not return And then in 1994 Perhaps his most intimate record Wildflowers And here's the beautiful title track record, by the way, was a difficult one for Tom. In his biography, he said that it was a harbinger of his divorce from his first wife. And he fell into a painful heroin addiction and wasn't heard from from a bit, but rebounded, came back, and continued to record great, great music. Looking back on his time with Petty, Rick Rubin was struck by how hard the late singer-songwriter worked. Quote, when we first met, I was impressed with his dedication to writing. He wrote constantly and called me to come and hear new songs often. There was a poetry about his music and his lyrics that spoke to me. Here's Tom Petty on where lyrics come from. It's kind of a dangerous business looking really deeply into what, you know, the germ that creates songs. I mean, I I don't like to stare at that light very long, you know. I I get a little superstitious about it, but 
there's some kind of actual magic going on there, and I feel like for some reason I was born with some kind of conduit to this, you know, this energy force or whatever it is, and I can have that happen through me if I really try to do it or sometimes when I'm not. Sometimes when I'm not. One example, and we're going to play you the lyrics, but I wanted to read them first from Southern Accents because he was such an amazing lyricist and Rubin found that poetry too, the great producer Rick Rubin. Here are the words towards the end of that song. There's a dream I keep having where my mama comes to me and kneels down over by the window and says a prayer for me. Got my own way of praying, but everyone's begun with a southern accent where I come from. I got my own way of living, but everything gets done with a southern accent where I come from. For the hour, we're celebrating the life, the music, the art of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. We're going to leave with that song, with those lyrics. And when we come back, more about the recording process, working with the Heartbreakers, his partnership with Bob Dylan, and so much more. This is Our American Stories, Tom Petty's story. And as always, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. So much about music. Music informs our life. And again, Jesse and I were lucky enough to see Tom Petty just a few months before he passed. Let's take a listen. There's a dream I keep
And you're listening to Tom Petty with Bob Dylan. And I saw that tour back in 1986, the True Confessions Tour. Petty and Dylan swapping songs, the Heartbreakers, the backup band for the entire tour. Hands down, one of the best shows I've ever seen, top three. And by the way, you can rent it uh, and go to Netflix and grab it. It's out there. Just put in Tom Petty and Bob Dylan, and you just won't believe it. And Dylan had a tremendous influence on Tom Petty's writing and on his life. But now it's time to talk about that band and the songs and the music. Here's Tom Petty describing what it takes as a musician to play with the Heartbreakers. If you're going to make the kind of music we make, you you really need to play with musicians and actually play your instruments and everything. And, and you need to... We like it and play between the musicians, so we, we always do our basic tracks with with at least five of us playing. Um, and then, you know, we'll take it and fool with it beyond that. And then, of course, Tom Petty writes his songs by himself, and then he brings them to the band, plays them just off his guitar to start, and he waits, well, for feedback. I wait for them to tell me it's a good song. You know, which you won't get right away. You know, you might get midway through the session, someone, as they're passing, will go, good song, you know, and and that means that's high praise. That's high praise. It turns out the heartbreakers don't gush when even their lead guy, Mr. Petty himself, brings a good song into the studio. They're trying to find what adds to the record, you know, and and we have this process of come in and play it to them on the guitar and they'll kind of be in a circle and watch. And I don't think they're really judging it yet. They're just trying to learn it. And once they've learned all the changes, we'll have a run through. Then if we made it all the way to the end, we'll go into the control room and listen right away. And there'll be a discussion like, okay, well, that's good. But that's not. Binma, that's a good bit there, but don't do this here. You know, the bass line is great, but it should change here. What are we going to do for an ending? It needs an ending. But how about da 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 da? Is the tempo good? No, I think it could be faster. Okay, all those changes in our head, and we go out, we play it a couple more times, we come right back. There are risks and rewards of recording albums without rehearsals. Here's Tom Petty talking about that. We were put in that situation early on at Shelter Records by Danny Cordell, who was, you know, and God bless him, he's passed on now, but he he just put us in the studio, like Shelter owned its studios, so they would just, he just put us in there and leave us, you know, and then check in on us. But he'd say, you know, you need to learn that Making a record and performing live are not necessarily related that much. You know, the the record is is a performance, but there's no one there. You know, you're you're creating uh, just like you would an oil painting. You know, you're adding color. You do your sketch, and the, there's a lot that goes on. So bit by bit, you learn how to make these noises that are you know, attractive or interesting. And that's tremendous fun. It's It still fascinates me that someone would be interested in a, 
a sample of something when you could take a microphone and make your own that may be much better or it's going to be far more interesting. But of course, you would have to play it. Yeah, you would have to play it. And by the way, lucky for Tom Petty that he came of age at a time when a manager and a label would say, go into the studio and just just learn how to do what you do. Lucky for him. Here's Tom Petty on thoughts about fame. A lot of people get famous now very quickly, and then they seem to have a turnover where they're not famous for that long, but someone else steps in to fill the slot. They're, they're sort of disposably famous, I suppose. But I can't keep up with who's famous anymore. I mean, I'm introduced to people all the time that someone will elbow me in the ribs and say, hey, they're famous. I have no idea. But I... <laughs> I know in my time, in my generation, if you'd have become, if they'd have tried to offer my generation music by someone that had won a game show, it would have been hysterical. So true, and times are different, and he's not judging it. He later goes on to talk about how he's nothing against the people who go out and do music that way, but my goodness, the way that Tom Petty did it, you don't go on a game show and audition his catalog. That's not how it works. Well, fame wasn't his motivation, but neither was money. It's never been my motivation. The money that comes with the, the success and all is, is great, and that's, that's probably all that you think it is, but it's, it's less than you think it is, too. You know, it's not going to work out your life for you, and it's not going to, you know... The uh, cliches usually have some basics basic truth to them, you know. And, but I'm not knocking that. Of course, that's, I'm very grateful, very blessed, and never take it for granted. But that isn't, if that were what was driving me, you know, I, I would have stopped. I, I'm doing this, you know, for the music, period. <laughs> and to hang around with my friends and, and play music with them. He just wanted to play with his friends. And that's what he did his whole life. It wasn't the money and it wasn't the fame. It was the music. Who was Tom Petty's toughest critic? I'm probably my harshest critic, you know. I'm still pretty hard on what I'm doing. And, and that, that works to my advantage in a way. Oh, it did. And you would probably hear that from almost every successful artist, almost every successful anything you got to be tough on yourself because pretty soon everyone's telling you you're wonderful and pretty soon you can start to believe it. And we're going to close now celebrating the life of Tom Petty, his art, his music by talking about the difference between those songs in the studio and what happens when you play them live. Because some of his hits were just solid concert songs but others, like the one we're about to play, my goodness, they went to an entirely different place in an entirely different space. And I'm not sure whether Petty and his men and boys knew what they were doing when they did it. U2 has songs like that. When they play Streets With No Name, it's big. When Bruce Springsteen plays Jungle Land and Born to Run, it's big. And you're about to hear a song that's one of my favorites, one of our team's favorites, and it's a concert favorite. 
And it starts off with the band leading, and then pretty soon the audience is singing, and then Petty's singing, and then pretty soon, in a remarkable and beautiful way, everyone's singing together. Aquinas said, when we sing, we pray twice. Let's take a listen to Petty, his audience, doing Learning to Fly together. Now some say life will beat you down And it'll break your heart Steal your crown So start it out For God knows where But I guess I'll know When I get there And that's what we try and do here on Our American Stories, bring you where you need to be and where we all need to be. And there's nothing more beautiful than a bunch of people getting together and singing like this, loving together like this. Tom Petty's life, his story here on Our American Stories. Looking down on the world below Our American Stories. And now it's time for our favorite segment, and it's uh, Jesse's World. In order to protect African cows from ravenous lions, Australian researchers have begun painting eyes on the rear end of cows. Lions are ambush predators, and they rely on stealth and the element of surprise in order to bring down their prey. 
As soon as they lose that element of surprise, as soon as the prey sees them, they abandon their hunt. That's why Dr. Neil Jordan and his fellow researchers are going to Botswana to paint eyes on cows' rumps. They hope it'll prove a low-cost way to protect livestock from lions and lions from being killed by farmers in retaliation. Dr. Jordan trialed his idea, which he calls Eye Cow, last year with promising results. The researchers stamped painted eyes under the butts of one-third of a herd of 62 cattle, making sure their eyes were large, easily visible, and potentially intimidating. While three unpainted cows were killed by lions, all the painted cows survived to graze another day. If successful, iCow would be an affordable tool for farmers. Losing one cow costs five times as much as painting a herd of 60 cattle. Livestock auctioneers spit some dope rhymes in glorious rap mashups. Watch out, Jay-Z. These livestock auctioneers are coming for your hip-hop crown. Vine user Auctioneer Beats, also known as Graham Haven Rich from Chicago, has mashed up a bunch of the animal seller's tight rhymes over some rap beats. The auctioneer's natural cadence and flow, which according to Modern Farmer magazine, they pick up at a special training school, Fused perfectly with the music. If animals were meant to cover rock and roll hits, they probably would have been born with better singing voices. But thankfully for us, that doesn't stop Insane Cherry. The YouTube channel returns with another creature dubbed masterpiece, Joan Osborne's One of Us. Splicing in barks, meows, hee-haws, and other beastly sounds from internet videos, Insane Cherry has also rendered Queen's We Will Rock You and Linkin Park's Numb. Watching the animals in Insane Cherry's latest ask what if God was one of us takes rock and roll theology to a whole new level. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And as always, Jesse, thanks for that great work. I don't know where you find this stuff, and don't tell me. And now we're going to move to another quickie here, and it's uh, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, How Much More Do You Need?
people ask me, you know, why don't you take a salary at the company? And uh, I stopped taking a salary about five, six years ago. I no longer take stock options, although they're offered to me and I'm a chairman of the company and I'm still gainfully employed at the company as the chief culture officer and I spend a fair amount of time on Cognex business. So I could justify easily uh, taking a salary, uh, but my feeling is that I don't need any more. It's, it's as if you went to a restaurant and had a great meal and the waiter comes over and says, uh, there's another entree I can offer you. Just because it's there and available, would you eat another meal after you're full? So I know it's a strange way of thinking about it, and there's nobody around that I, none of my friends understand why I wouldn't want more money. And uh, the, the, the reason is very simple. I have plenty and more than I can do anything usefully with. So why not use that money, let the company give it to other employees, let them give it as a bonus, or save those stock options for other more needy people. We don't have needy people in the company, but other people who, are, who it would benefit more than it would benefit me. I get many calls from investment advisors, asking me what rate of return I'm getting and they promise me 50 more basis points and I don't need 50 more basis points. It doesn't matter and it really su surprises me. I know a few uh, multi-billionaires and they're still trying to make more money. I mean, I'm never going to be the richest man in the world, okay? Uh, you know, uh, life has been very good for me but I'm not going to be the richest man in the world and that's probably a good thing. You don't want that because then you have to have security people, your name gets out there, there are problems. Most people think, oh, I wish I had this much money. Well, there are problems with, with being ultra rich. Uh, and so, but I still have friends who, who can't understand why, uh, even my wife says, well, why don't you make more money? <laughs> I said, what is it you need? You know, what more do we need? What more do we need and what more do you need? And thank you, Dr. Bob. And we look forward to more life lessons. And thanks, Jesse, as always, for those, well, all those things only you can provide here on Our American Stories. Jesse's World, life lessons from Dr. Bob. More after these messages. stories and today we want to bring your attention to an amazing documentary that is currently available on Netflix and Hulu a documentary that will make you laugh think and cry 
And this segment you're about to hear is a preview of what you'll see in this mind-opening film. And we love to bring you things from the culture and pass them along to you. And you may have a life we don't. We love checking out all this stuff and sharing it with you. Alive Inside is a joyous cinematic exploration of music's capacity to reawaken our souls and uncover the deepest parts of our humanity. It chronicles the astonishing experiences of individuals suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's around the country who have been revitalized through the simple experience of listening to music. So what's the big deal? Why would anyone go out of their way to give someone with Alzheimer's an iPod? Take a listen to this 90-year-old woman who tragically can't remember much about her life on this earth when she's asked about her childhood. How old are you? How old am I? Yeah. I'm 90 years old. What was life like when you were a little girl? Oh, God, I've forgotten so much. I've forgotten so much. I'm very sorry. Oh, it's okay. What have you forgotten? I've forgotten what I used to do after I became a young lady. I've forgotten so much. I can't remember. I've been here here 90 years, and if I could remember... I would tell you, but I don't, I can't remember. Dan Cohen is founder and director of Music and Memory, which promotes the use of digital music players with individualized playlists to improve the quality of life for elders. Listen to what happens when he plays this same woman, some Louis Armstrong. I want to try an experiment. What? I want you to try and let the music take you back into your memories, to travel back into time. And then we'll stop, and you can tell me where it took you. Um, um, You ready? Yes, I want to be in that number. I went to St. He's saying when the Saints go by, marching by, and it takes me back to my school days. I would like to hit the number. Mama told us not to go listen to him. We would sneak off at night, bring back pictures from the dance. And I worked in King County nine years. I was working in Fort Jackson. And my son, on February the 4th, was 69. <laughs> I didn't know I could talk so What you just heard was an instant illumination of this woman's soul through the power of music. What a great God moment. But you need to watch this documentary called Alive Inside to get the full effect. Seeing the faces, the body language of elderly people who instantly light up upon hearing the music of their youth is something we all need to witness for ourselves. Next, we're introduced to another old-timer named Henry. Henry is borderline catatonic and doesn't recognize his daughter. Henry, speak to me. I want to hear your voice. Can you talk to me? Mm-hmm. So let me hear you. Tell me your full name. Henry has dementia and he needs total assistance with all his activities of daily living. Hi, Papa. Huh? How you doing? Huh? Who am I? I'm your daughter. Daughter? Mm-hmm. Which one? Wait a minute. I got two in the eye. I don't know. Listen to Henry after a nurse puts headphones on his ears. He asks if he can sing along, 
Then a nurse describes his reaction. I'm supposed to sing with this? You can if you like. met him he was very isolated and he used to always sit on the unit with his head like this he didn't really talk to much people and then when I introduced the music to him this is his reaction every since <laughs> oh, everyone in that room with Henry was blown away by his reaction Dan Cohen the man behind this effort to give music back to the elderly who suffer from dementia, talked to Henry right after he listened to that song. Here is their remarkable conversation. Do you like music? Yeah, I'm crazy about music. You play beautiful music, beautiful sound. Did you like music when you were young? Yes, yes, I went to big dances and things. What was your favorite music when you were young? Well, uh, I guess uh, Cab Calloway was my number one band guy. I liked it. Isn't that incredible? This man couldn't recognize his own daughter, but after just a few minutes of listening to an iPod, could remember his favorite musician, Cab Calloway, as he burst out into a scat. Henry was then asked what his favorite song was, and what the favorite part of his life was. Listen to what happens next. What was your favorite song? Oh, I'll be on the Christmas. You can count plans on me with plenty of snow, mistletoe. Present, wrap around you three. Ow! Christmas Eve will carry me where that love light beam. Henry. Ma, yeah. What was the favorite part of your life? What was your favorite part of your life? Bro, my life. It was part of my life was riding a bicycle. Grocery boy. What did you like about riding a bicycle? That's why I made my money. You need no money. Isn't that true about all the favorite parts of our life? So what's going on here? This film goes on to explain that music is recorded in the part of our brain that is the last place dementia affects. So why isn't this being implemented in nursing homes across this country and everywhere? Dan Cohen explains the problem. I can sit down and write out a script for $1,000 a month antidepressant. No problem. Nobody asks any questions. If I want to provide a person with a $40 personal music system, that will take a lot of work. Because personal music doesn't count as a medical intervention. You see what I'm saying? It's sort of a side thing over here. The real business, trust me, is in the pill bottle. Open for me? Our healthcare system imagines the human being to be a very complicated machine. Uh, we figured out how to turn the dials. Blood pressure, oh, turn that down, you know. Blood sugar, oh, turn that down. 
We have medicines that can adjust the dials. We haven't done anything, medically speaking, to touch the heart and soul of a patient. One more of the many elderly in this film suffering from dementia is a woman named Mary Lou. Here, she struggles to identify kitchen utensils before she is given an iPod. Listen to what she says immediately after listening to the Beach Boys. What do you call that? Um, it's a... For, uh, Knife? No. Fork? Or spoon? Would you like to hear some music? Would you like to listen to some music? Sure. Why not? Here you go. I don't know how to do this. Just straight over your ears and your head. Perfect. See a little button in the middle? That's that? Yeah, right in the middle. Click it once. Stop the music. Uh, oh, thank you so much. Okay. So there's uh, tears of joy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure. Oh, yeah. That's the best thing I've ever, ever had, this thing. It can't get away from me if I'm in this place. I thought you were going to grow wings. I was trying. I, I, you... <laughs> <laughs> This incredible documentary concludes with a beautiful message on the importance and power of music in all of our lives. And we know, we know that to be the case. What a remarkable thing this man did. We know music has the power to change lives. We know it triggers memory. But this guy went out and did it. And let me tell you, if you want to help or you want to know more or learn more, go to musicandmemory.org. That's musicandmemory.org. There you can learn more about Dan Cohen's remarkable mission to bring music to those of us who need it more than ever. What a selfless, creative, and generous way to honor those in their final days. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and on our show we like to share the experiences of our soldiers in order to help heal the citizen-soldier divide in this country. And it's big. It's not like it used to be in the old days, where VFW halls were filled with ordinary Americans who served. So few of our fellow countrymen serve in the armed services these days. Well, one of our regular contributors is Ben Sledge. Ben is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he spent time in the United States Army serving a portion of it under the special ops before leaving the military after 11 years of service. He's a recipient of the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Ben now works with the music industry for Heart Support, a nonprofit that helps millennials battle addiction, suicide ideation, depression, sexual abuse, loneliness, broken relationships, and a host of other issues. Here, he tells the story of his friend Casey, someone who helped him transition back to normal everyday life after his deployment. It was raining the day Casey died. Fourteen years earlier, you hunched covering your face as sun-bleached gravel whipped through your hair and pelted your cheek. 
The incoming helicopters kicked gravel and sand into those of us stupid enough to wait, or curious enough to discover more. Men ran frantically while pointing and yelling. Some had black smudges across their face you could only assume was tar or gunpowder. Then they hauled him off the helicopter while yelling to clear a path. Most people remember the first time they've watched someone die. Grandma in the hospital bed whose hand goes slack. The friend in the accident who exhales one last time while his eyes go wide. Yours involved blood and gurgling noises. The bleached earth turning a dark crimson while the stretcher drizzled the nearby ground like a light rain. You always remember the gasping noises. It's that noise that sticks out the most. Everything else after that moment is blocked out. It's like trying to open a portion of your mind where you buried a key. But the key is in a safe whose combination you don't know. Years later, it's the gurgling, gasping noise you remember. And then a rifle, two boots, a helmet, and dog tags. That's what you remember. Casey was there when you had those dreams. The one about men dying. The ones where you remembered you were all alone in this big green earth. The ones where you felt abandoned and misunderstood. She would cradle your face and whisper, They're there. Our soul often remembers the darkest days or the moments that permanently changed us. As Casey was dying, there were memories that flooded my stream of consciousness. Coming home from war, facing divorce, feelings of abandonment and loneliness the morbid death dreams. Why are you dwelling on some of your most horrific life moments now, I pondered. It wasn't until after her passing that I realized the same lesson she always taught me. She was now teaching me in death. For much of my life, I believed the trauma I endured would affect everything I touched, would last forever, and that some of it was my fault. I helped blow up my marriage being gone all the time. I couldn't stop thinking about how alone I feel. I had no one and I deserve that. You wonder how to go on in life and whether you'll ever be okay. It'll get better. That's the platitude you hear offered by others. They don't know what to say either. Casey was different. The word she spoke over and over again was a simple one. Endure. It was as if Casey was my personal butler, Alfred, and I was Batman. In the movie The Dark Knight, Bruce Wayne seemed stuck in an impossible dilemma and asked his butler for advice, whereas others might have given him a pat on the back and said, Buck up, kiddo. You're the Batman, and you're rich. Alfred, instead, delivers one of the most powerful lines in the movie. He tells him, Endure, Master Wayne. Take it. You can make the choice that no one else can make. The right choice. People these days fall apart over seemingly nothing. They didn't get the job they wanted. Life isn't going according to their five-year plan. They're not married or in a relationship. They feel they lack purpose or direction. Their waiter got their order wrong. Much of the Western world seems to lack resiliency and the ability to endure hardship, it would seem. We don't know how to process grief, let alone the crisis life throws at us. But sorting through our disappointment, grief, and trauma is paramount to becoming a whole and resilient person. In their book, Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy, Adam Grant and Sheryl Sandberg explain, We plant the seeds of resilience in the ways we process negative events. After spending decades studying how people deal with setbacks, psychologist Martin Siegelman found that three P's can stunt recovery. One, personalization, the belief that we are at fault. Two, pervasiveness, the belief that an event will affect all areas of our life. And three, permanence, the belief that the aftershocks of the event will last forever. 
the loop in your head repeats, it's my fault this is awful, my whole life is awful, and it's always going to be awful. As Casey went blind and could no longer walk up the stairs to my house, I knew it was another time to endure grief and pain, so I gently laid her in the back of my car and drove to the veterinarian. I guess I forgot to mention Casey was my 16-year-old cat. I never wanted to be the guy who gets overly attached to an animal, let alone falls to pieces when they die. To some degree, it's unhealthy. There are children dying in Syria we need to be more concerned with than Fluffy or Fido. However, when I shared this sentiment in the midst of my grief with my best friend, he reminded me of something. It scares me how attached I am to my dog sometimes. I think the reason why is that it's a different relationship. With my dog, I never have to wonder where I stand with him, or if I've let him down. That's a lesson I'm taking to heart, to love my wife and friends better. Before I got remarried, I lived with a close friend who played football for Dartmouth. He too had a cat he was obsessed with. We always laugh about an evening we invited two girls over who made fun of us for looking like professional athletes that had an uncanny affection for cats. My old roommate's cat, named Gus, died tragically about a year ago. When he shared what he learned, I realized his lesson was the same as mine. Resilience. His cat was an anchor when he moved to another state found himself in a job he hated, lived alone, and wanted to kill himself. That cat kept me from killing myself. Who the hell was going to feed him if I was gone? Then over time I realized he was weathering the changes better than I was. My cat could make it, so could I. When Gus passed away, despite his grief, he took that lesson to heart and endured. And he continues to do so in the midst of some of the hardest situations and decisions he's faced. Perhaps that's the great joy we often miss in the animals we love. The lessons they teach us that help us grow stronger. Whether that's loving someone when they don't deserve it, resilience, patience, or even suffering well. Animals seem to endure suffering better than humans. Whereas we ask why, they crawl off to be alone. When I arrived at the vet to put Casey down, I tried not to cry in front of the tech. When it came time, put her down, the vet asked me, are you ready for this? That's when the memories I described in the beginning flooded back. There was Casey, cuddling my face when I felt sad, and teaching me to endure. I was in Afghanistan and Iraq, I said through a knowing smile. I've seen worse. An hour later, I buried Casey in my backyard while it rained. I buried her in a spot where there was no grass growing and most of the vegetation was dead. I figured it was appropriate. Because even in her death, where she's buried reminds me that where there's no grass, there's always an opportunity for some to grow. And thank you, Ben, for that. And always thanks for your contributions. That's Ben Sledge, United States Army. Special Ops, and again, a Bronze Star, Purple Heart, two Army Commendation Medals, and an homage to his cat and what he learned from that animal. We love our animals, and we love animals here on this show because you do, and who doesn't? Ben Sludge's story here on Our American Stories, and you can go to Our American Network to hear all that we do and share your stories of loss with us. And what you learned from that loss, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, post your story, 
record your story, and we'll play it back here on Our American Stories. is our american stories and now it's time for one of our favorite segments the story of a song and today's comes from an artist whose songs are best known through cover versions by other musicians his jersey girl was performed by bruce springsteen his all 55 was sung by the eagles down there by the train by johnny cash i hope that i don't fall in love with you by Ten Thousand maniacs the Long Way Home by Nora Jones, I Don't Want to Grow Up by the Ramones, and Downtown Train by Rod Stewart. And by the way, just from the mix of those artists, you've got to say, wow, what range. Today's song is about one man, one woman, and one tavern. With no further ado, let's take a listen to find out more about this one-of-a-kind American singer-songwriter. Our next guest is one of the most distinctive writers and performers working today. He's kind of a combination poet, jazz singer, and vagrant. He is a mix- mixture of um, Satchmo Armstrong and Humphrey Bogart. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tom Waits. How are you, Tom? Oh, I'm better than nothing. Your songs are about waitresses and bartenders and bums. Why do you celebrate these people in song? For the same reason that a lawyer hangs out in a pool room or or you find a lot of photographers at a wedding, you know? Because I uh, find a lot of ideas here and there's a lot of life going on around here. And, um, you know, so I'm uh, kind of a bit of a private investigator, maybe, you know? You know, my dad spent a lot of time in the bars. My dad drank in the afternoon and really dark bars so i was drawn to dark places everybody needs a different climate in order to create mine usually comes in uh if i'm talking with somebody in a bar or something i uh get a couple of loggers and uh try to stretch out in conversation i try to open things up and then uh, i try to remember it all later and then i write it down there's a, a, a real romance to hanging around these places. It's where you go to meet girls, but it's also where you go to invent yourself in strangers' eyes. He's an extraordinary painter of pictures, as well as a teller of stories. Looking for the heart of Saturday night. 
Loneliness hits so much at the heart of so much of his music, I think. It's just a longing for something and being alone and how do you live with that and how do you deal with it? Magic or the melancholy tearing your eyes. I think Waits is a poet of doomed no-hopers. People who are almost like characters from a noir novel. They're getting their last chance at love. He was just a man out of time, clearly, and he knew it, I think, <laughs> obviously, and he, he played with it. The craft and young genius of someone who was coming up with lyrics that were on a par with someone like Johnny Mercer or Hoagy Carmichael or any of the songwriters that had been the backbone of the classic American songbook. Swam all wings on run. Swam I changed my name. The Great American Songbook is something that either gets to you or it doesn't. And it got to Tom. Because there was a lot of intelligence in that, in the lyrics of those songs. I would go over to my friends' houses and go into the den with their dads and find out what they were listening to. I couldn't wait to be an old man. I was about 13, you know. I didn't really identify with the music of my own generation, but I seemed to like the old stuff, Cole Porter and Gershwin and Frank Sinatra. What is this thing called love? Tom had that wonderful talent to absorb all of these things this that he saw. It's like storing up paints and being able to dig out the colors you want when you get ready to paint a picture. This is what he does. He paints pictures. And so true. And one of Tom Waits' most heartbreaking, beautiful picture songs is called I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You. This tender storyteller with a boozy baritone while wearing a $7 suit and an old man's weathered fedora hat expresses what a billion men have felt not the least on a lonely Saturday night. Here's I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You. One, two, three, four. Well, I hope that I don't fall in love with you Makes me blue. Well, the music plays and you display your heart for me to see. I had a beer and now I hear you calling out for me. Share. 
sit down with this old clown Take that frown and break it Before the evening's gone away I think that we can make it I had the guts to bump one, but we've never met. And I hope that I don't fall in love with you. I can see that you are lonesome, just like me. And it being late, you'd like some company. Turn around and look at you And you look back at me The guy you're with is up and split the chair next to you's free And the turn in the fourth phrase, I hope that you don't fall in love with me. After exposing all of his fears of commitment, the narrator realizes he is falling for this girl that he's never met, but now must face the realization she may return the favor. You can feel the pain of a man afraid of commitment in this song. He fumbles and worries, and once he finally gets the confidence to face her, well, it's too late. She's gone, and he knows he's missed his shot. And that's the world of Tom Waits. That's the world he inhabited in his music. I was always wanting to be an old man, he said, listening to Sinatra when everybody else was listening to rock and roll. The loneliness, by the way, in Sinatra's music, too. You want to hear a great hour. Listen to our hour on the life of Frank Sinatra here on Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. And again, the work of Tom Waits, the life of Tom Waits, the story of a song, I hope I don't fall in love with you. This is Our American Stories. ¶¶ 